Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. If you've ever visited Thailand, even for a short time, you've probably been given or have come across some basic instructions on do's and don'ts, where to put or not to put your hands and feet, what to wear or not to wear to a temple, and why and perhaps how not to get angry in public, that sort of thing. Perhaps you've wondered about the pedagogies that have given these social practices their durability. And whether you've been to the country or not, you might have seen news media reports that show prime ministers and army generals prostrate before members of the royal family. And you might have wondered how almost a century after the demise of the absolute monarchy, deference to sovereign power is still so resolutely performed. If so, then you've come to the right podcast, because on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, Patrick Jory is going to talk about his A History of Manners and Civility in Thailand, published in 2021 by Cambridge University Press. Patrick is an Associate Professor of History at the University of Queensland and one of the hosts of the Southeast Asian Studies channel. He'll be talking with me, Nick Cheeseman, an Associate Professor in the Department of Political and Social Change at the Australian National University. Patrick, welcome back to the other side of the microphone and congratulations not only on getting this long-awaited history to print, but also for its winning the 2022 McCreer Book Prize of the Asian Studies Association of Australia. Thank you very much, Nick. I'm guessing that most listeners would appreciate why there are these little illustrated books for tourists with basic advice about etiquette when they go to Thailand, but why write a whole history about it? I had spent a lot of time in the Thai education system, actually. I was a rugby coach at a, an elite school in Bangkok for a couple of years, and then I went back a little bit later, and I was working at a university in southern Thailand, well, I like university, in fact. And particularly in the educational institutions, I noticed these very refined forms of manners and etiquette. And it struck me something right from the start that I thought, oh, that's very interesting. I put it down to the culture and didn't really think that much more about it. It was only a little bit later when a Thai colleague of mine said, oh, if you're interested in manners, you might have a look at this handbook. And it was, in fact, the most famous Thai manners manual, Sombat Kongpudi, every Thai person would know it, which I've translated as the qualities of a gentle person. It's written in 1900 by an aristocrat, and it has been published umpteen times right up until today. And when I went through this manual, I could see the forms of manners and conduct and speech and so on actually written down in a very prescribed way. And I thought, okay, so there is actually a sort of a code of conduct that is written down and people conduct themselves according to this, this code of conduct. The other thing that set me off on this project was, again, I think it was a recommendation by another Thai colleague 
to have a look at the work of Norbert Elias. In fact, in the early 2000s, sort of Norbert Elias went through a bit of a boom in Thai, I think it was anthropology, in fact, anthropology and sociology. And so people were talking about him and someone suggested I have a look at it. And I read this book, The Civilizing Process, uh, probably his most famous work. Uh, I think it's a a brilliant book. And he presents this long-term history, sociological history, of how manners and conduct and behaviour change over long periods of time. He starts in the medieval period and takes it up really, I guess, to the 19th century, the post-revolution and French Revolution period. And then I could see that this story could have a historical element to it. So from that point onwards, I saw, okay, there's a project that I can do here. I can write a history of manners and I've gotten an, an approach which I thought would work well for the Thai case, which hadn't been used before. In fact, Norbert Elias uh, hasn't been used all that much for the studies of manners in Asian context. You say in the introduction that Thailand may be the most courtly society in Asia. Is that prompted by Elias's work? And could you speak to that point also thinking through then what the implications are for this way of framing your topic, both for the purposes of the history, but also I think it would be productive for us to think and talk comparatively as well about the relations in Thailand that you're documenting and how they compare to neighbours near and far. Exactly. You mentioned the courtly society. That uh, is the title of another of Elias's uh, well-known works. And it became clear to me that all of these Southeast Asian, I guess I'm Southeast Asian, so that's the, the region I know best, had these, uh, these these courtly societies at one time or another, many of them, you know, kind of possibly hundreds of them scattered around the place. Thailand, I think, was one of the most powerful of these courtly societies. And unlike a lot of the other courtly societies in Southeast Asia, it managed to survive. It survived the colonial period, as we know famously, the only country of Southeast Asia which wasn't directly colonised. Uh, it survived the social revolutions of the independence, independence period. It survived the ideological conflict of the Cold War period, not without scars, of course. It had to adapt itself in many ways, but its court society did survive. And in fact, during the Cold War period, it was revived to a certain extent. So I think in the case of Thailand, perhaps more so than most other countries in Southeast Asia at least, the manners and the ideals of conduct that are characteristic of the court society uh, were very influential on ideas of national identity as they become more widespread over the course of the 20th century, particularly by the second half of the 20th century. And in fact, it's, it's interesting when in discourses of Thai national identity, manners are actually quite central, but it's often a courtly understanding of manners. So Elias gives or gave me a way of talking about this. He, in his civilizing process, gives a lot of attention to the courtly society of France during the, the absolutist period of uh, King Louis the Fourteenth. And you read some of his descriptions, and you th- you think you could have been uh, he could have been describing the society of the fifth reign, the reign of King Jhulalongkorn, or or even in some respects the reign of King Pumipon. It was just so similar. One of the things that really attracted me to Elias's work was that I think for a long time manners conduct these kinds of things have been seen as a kind of part of some sort of essentialized notion of Thai identity. And I was never really satisfied with that. Obviously, it's a very kind of conservative view. When I saw these same kinds of conduct being described in Elias, I could see, okay, this is something which we can see in other societies. So the book actually has a strong comparative element. I wanted to sort of take the study of manners 
to the extent that there is one. It's not a huge area in the study of Thai history or Thai anthropology, but I wanted to take it out of that sort of Thai framework and look at it much more comparatively with the history of manners in the West, as Elias describes it. So that comparative element, rightly or wrongly, for better or for worse, comes out quite strongly in the book. It does seem to me that methodologically what you're doing is offering a way of taking Thailand's history seriously on its own terms, but then also using Elias, as you says, or let me suggest, as a kind of a scaffold in order to enable comparisons. I thought that was one of the really productive and useful parts of the book. At the same time, I'm thinking that you previously wrote this book on Thailand's theory of monarchy and the idea or ideal of the perfect man as articulated in Buddhist political thought. In what ways did that project influence your thinking about this one? Interesting question, Nick. One of the arguments of the book was that the Jataka stories, the stories of the Buddha's former life, and in particular the final Jataka, the Vasantara Jataka, the story of the Buddha's life as the Bodhisatta, the future Buddha as Prince Vasantara, where he gives away his children, his wife, his kingdom, everything he has. And in that way, he achieves the perfection of giving. This is part of this broader theory of the perfections, which I talk about quite a lot in the book, which is all about conduct. It's all about ideal conduct. It's the conduct, though, of the Bodhisatta, the future Buddha. So I guess that early book got me interested in ideals of, of how to behave, how to conduct yourself. If I could just maybe add something to your, your previous comment, too, about how I tried to adapt the Thai case to Elias's framework. I'm a historian. Elias is a sociologist, a historical sociologist. It was a lot, used to be a lot more sort of of a historical dimension in sociology back in his day. Uh, but what I wanted to do was to put an empirical flesh on that framework that Elias offered for the history of manners in Europe, put some empirical flesh on a similar framework for Thailand. So the book, although it does use Elias's framework, it tries to fill it out empirically by showing how ideas of conduct do change over time. And I, I use, uh, I think, a, a considerable amount of sort of empirical material to, to make that point. I hope it's more than just applying this framework, but in fact, actually filling it out with the empirical substance. Great. So let's turn to that. And I'd just like to note, though, on an aside that I do know a few comparative historical sociologists, so <laughs> they, they are still at work. In any case, we'll move to some of the ways that you're trying to bring the framework into conversation with the materials that you're working with and the data that you generated on Thailand. And you have a number of nice schemas to enable you to do that. You have a fourfold periodization, three important shifts. You also have a number of different institutions that you identify as being involved importantly in the codification and reorganization of terms and conditions, if you like, for manners, those being the monkhood, court society, bureaucracy, schooling, the military and institutions of commerce. But I think rather than go through all of these periods and institutions in the manner of a checklist, it might be more interesting for listeners to explore how these various institutions have weighed in on questions of right or wrong conduct in different periods by attending to specific types of bodily comportment and speech and the kinds of materials that were used to shape that conduct. So as we've already been talking about courtly conduct, let's carry on with that and specifically the relation between prostration and civilization. What is that relation? And crudely put, how do we go from a situation in the 19th century in which prostration is the norm to another in the first part of the 20th in which everyone is milling around and standing upright in public at least, even with the king? And 
And then back to a situation in the latter part of the century and up to date to today in which prostration has made a comeback of sorts. So talk us through the ups and downs, if you will, of prostration. It is a practice that goes back to Angkorian times and it's really adopted by the Thai elite as they accept, subsume that Angkorian Khmer royal courtly culture. So you, you find it you know, throughout the record really up until the 19th century and part of the book gives a lot of attention to the impact of the entry of the colonial powers into Southeast Asia in the, the 19th century where their impact is much more intensive. They've been there obviously earlier than that, but their influence is much more intensive during the 19th century. And from about the 1820s, 1830s, you see it in John Bowring's book too in the 1850s, prostration is seen as something which is uncivilised. It's seen as something which is characteristic of a backward society which prizes a submission and a, a slavish kind of behaviour. And this, of course, is related to the movement to, to abolish slavery and you know, discourses of social equality which are developing in the West. So as the Europeans become more powerful in Southeast Asia and in Thailand itself, this is seen as a backward and uncivilised practice. And the whole discourse of civilization is also on the rise you know, in the second half of the 19th century. And for the Thais, of course, this is it's absolutely fundamental because it, it expresses, you know, differential social status. Uh, you can't have, you know, commoners on unequal grounds with the aristocrats. That's, this can't be done. Nevertheless, the pressure from the West is so great that under the reign of King Jhulalongkorn, it's one of the first the first things he does. His one of his first edicts is to ban the practice of prostration at the royal court. And all the, the, the Europeans, of course, are very impressed by this. They see King Jhulalongkorn as the leader of the so-called New Siam movement, which was progressive and you know, modernizing. So this edict is held up, which bans prostration and replaces it with European customs of, of a standing and bowing to your sovereign. This is held up as a, a sign of the, the, the civilized nature of Siam's monarchy. In fact, as I try to show, in public, they follow the new Western custom of just bowing to the king. In private, it seems that the old custom of prostration just continues pretty much uh, unchanged. And it's not just, by the way, prostration towards the monarchy. Anyone of social rank, particularly the aristocrats, but also uh, slaves, of course, have to prostrate to their, um, their owners. It's just widespread throughout the society. So official public events involving the monarchy, they follow the Western custom, but within Thai society, itself within the royal houses, uh, the princely courts, uh, prostration continues on pretty much unchecked. To fast forward, it becomes seen within Thai society over the course of the, of the early 20th century as backward and again slavish. And after the 1932 revolution, it, it seems to have died out. It still, it seems in Again, the, the royal aristocratic households, it's still practiced, but in public, in, in official events, it's gone. Then something happens in the latter part of the 20th century where, as, as we know, following the coups by Field Marshal Sirit in 57 and 58, there's this conservative return. The military seized power, there's a dictatorship, and there's a revival of the monarchy. The monarchy is brought back and it's made the sort of symbolic centre of the new Thai state under this conservative military dictatorship. Over time these royal customs start to be revived. This old courtly culture, if you like, starts to be revived. 
And in the late 1970s, particularly the 1980s, you're starting to see the military. And in fact, sometimes it's the Sino-Thai business tycoons, you know, they're they're invited to some royal events and they start to perform the custom of prostration. It's taught in the schools as part of the manners uh, curriculum. There's a whole chapter I talk about how following this conservative turn in the 50s and 60s, uh, this very conservative mode of uh, manners is taught in manners classes in the schools. So uh, prostration makes a comeback in the 70s and late 1980s during the reign of King Pumipon. And it becomes increasingly controversial, really, from the period of this conflict that we've seen over the last 20 years between, initially, the Thaksin-led governments, these democratically elected governments, and the royalist and military establishment, which have been intent on uh, seizing back power from uh, those democratically elected governments. And prostration has become increasingly politicised and seen as as a backward practice that should be abolished. In fact, it already was abolished almost 150 years ago now, but uh, it, it has seemingly been revived. So it's become a bit of a public issue over the last 20 years or so once again. Yes, and it's an example of how a one a category of conduct that you identify and document throughout the book is really, especially, as you, you said, from the late 1950s onwards, weaponized by the military, right? Uh, that man has become a part of a program to re-engineer the Thai state and to return, as it were, to the court and courtly practices back after this period in which sort of civil society is the increasingly the predominant mode of talking and thinking thinking both about the way that political and social elites organize themselves, but how the bourgeoisie can be expanded through bureaucracy and through other uh, new institutions. So I found these aspects of the book really fascinating. One of the things you return to throughout the book is the degree to which all of this is codified. You mentioned at the outset that you encountered this text that made you think about the work that codification was doing. So could you speak a little bit more to the qualities of these instructional texts that you're identifying over these different periods, who is responsible for their writing and production and their dissemination and what the effects of them were in these successive periods? Yes. So these manners manuals are a major part of the empirical substance that I use uh, in the book. I think I refer to 80-odd manners, manuals, and I could, there's, there's hundreds of them. You know, It's a period in which everyone is writing about manners, literally everyone, kings and princes and noblemen and, and novelists and journalists and monks and military generals. And it's just one of those periods in which manners, everyone feels that it needs to be discussed. I think I, I refer to this quote in the book by Norbert Elias, where he says that in times of great change, people become uncertain of their manners. So there's a demand for new modes of behaviour. And hence, we see these uh, manners, manuals produced, not just produced from within Thailand, but imported from uh, from the US and from the UK, from, from Britain. Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People is brought and translated very early on, actually. So there's this huge interest in manners in the, the early decades of the 20th century. What I hope I made clear in the book is I'm not arguing that people read these manners books and then they adjust their behavior accordingly. They don't have that kind of a force. What I see the manners manuals and, and the novels, by the way, there's a whole genre of so-called novels of manners, which, you know, remember people like you know Jane Austen in, in England, you've got a sort of similar genre developing in Thailand in the early decades of the 20th century. We see these plots where people's behavior is the central concern of the novelist. What these things, I think, reflect is what 
Norbert Ellis refers to, and this is a major concept in the book, as the relations of interdependence between the courtly aristocratic society and this emerging bourgeois society. This is what is producing these new forms of behaviour, and this is what is giving rise to this literature on manners. It's a sort of social process as an aristocratic class, which is actually in decline. I, I talk about that in quite some detail in the book. The aristocratic class, as in other parts of Southeast Asia, is in decline for some slightly different reasons. In the case of colonised Southeast Asia, the colonial powers by the late 19th, early 20th century have removed most of their authority and are now starting to sort of cut most of their privileges. In fact, in the case of Thailand, a similar thing is happening. And there are two major uh, reforms that bring an end to that aristocratic dominance of Thai society. One is the the so-called manpower reforms, by which prior to this, every feudal lord, if you like, Zhao in Thai, would have, say, you know, 100, 200, 1,000 serfs prior who were legally obliged to work for them for free, basically. This is a problem for modernising the, the Thai economy. So King Dulalongkorn, over a long period of time, in fact, it doesn't take place immediately, ends this forced manpower system and, and uh, we, we see the transition to a freer labour market. Part of this reform is also the end of slavery, which uh, again takes place over about a generation. But by the early 20th century, slavery is pretty much gone. So by this time, the aristocrats have lost their, their manpower and now have to, have to pay for the, for the labour that they require, and they go into economic decline. After the revolution of 1932, of course, they've lost their political authority too. So the aristocracy is, in, is effectively in decline. But their courtly manners and their aristocratic sense of their stock, that's still there. And we see this conflict arise over the early decades of the 20th century as you have a rising middle class. So the other reform I mentioned was the the establishment of a bureaucracy. This is a a major reform that takes place in the 1890s. And by the 1920s, the bureaucracy is actually quite large, close to 100,000 people. These are the so-called bourgeois bureaucrats, the term that Gulladar uses. These are bourgeois people, most of them are commoners, and their forms of conduct are quite different to those of of the aristocrats. They have to work. They have to get to the office on time. They've got to work in a cooperative way with their colleagues. They can't treat people like slaves anymore. So the so-called habitus, that sociological concept that Elias and and other sociologists of, of the period, Weber and Morse and Durkheim and others use, the habitus of the aristocracy is challenged by this, this emerging habitus of the bourgeois bureaucrats. And this is the, the major conflict from about the 1890s right through to arguably up until the 1970s, 1980s. And what it gives rise to is this hybridised form of conduct. So there are courtly aspects to it and there, there are bourgeois aspects to it. And this book that I started the book with, the Sombai Kompudi, The Qualities of a Gentle Person, you can sort of see both bourgeois and courtly concepts in it. It's quite clear, perhaps more on the bourgeois side. Part of it's coming from the the sort of Victorian British influence, but part of it's arising as a result of factors within society where the court needs to have a functioning bureaucracy and you need to have people who have the right forms of conduct to make this bureaucracy uh, work properly. So you get this hybridised ideal of conduct, which I refer to as the, the conduct of the gentle person. So the book is actually about the history of the gentle person, this ideal of conduct. What I argue is really that the gentle person is the successor, if you like, to that old courtly ideal. The courtly ideal is, is, is in decline. It doesn't collapse overnight, of course, but it gives rise to this new ideal, which is more bourgeois in nature, but you can still see the courtly traces in there, the ideal of the gentle person. And of course, you have 
conservative writers on manners, often aristocrats or people who are close to the palace. When they're talking about the gentle person, they emphasize the courtly nature of the ideal of conduct. When it's the commoners with maybe a more progressive mindset, they emphasize the more kind of middle-class aspects of of conduct, social equality, uh, treating people fairly, this kind of thing. So the key, I guess, dynamic that I discuss in the book is this, as Elias refers to it, this interdependence between this old courtly class, which is in decline, and this rising bureaucratic bourgeois class that would go on to dominate Thailand really after 1932. Yeah, excellent. I think you've set that out really well, and I'm glad that we've covered those points and we have the gentle person firmly in our view. Now, one of the characteristics of that usage is, in English, the way you're using it is that it's not gendered because the term that you're translating from in Thai also is not gender specific. But of course, the work of making gentle people was highly gendered. And one chapter of the book concentrates on how women are addressed as subjects of this program, again, through various forms of codification and intervention. Can you Tell us a little bit about some of the means by which women were enlisted into a program, which after all was predominantly a program introduced, managed by men, codified by men, and ultimately is responsible for the reinforcement and persistence of patriarchal order. Uh, when Biamalagun, who is the guy who, who writes this uh, famous manual, Qualities of a Gentle Person, when he writes a book, the modern education system has just been started. In fact, he is the uh, director or the principal, if you like, of the Royal Pages School, which later becomes uh, Jula-Longkorn University. It's, a, it's an all-male school. And the school is set up really to produce bureaucrats to provide the personnel for this expanding bureaucracy. So it's all male. The transformation that we're seeing is the transformation from a courtly society in which you had queens and princesses within the courtly society who were actually very powerful. They would have higher status, of course, than a, than a lower uh, status male. As the courtly power goes into decline and the bureaucratic power is on the rise, women lose out, really. They, they lose their prominent position in public society. And there's a famous novel written by the minor aristocrat Kukrit Brahmort, where he actually, in one part of the novel, talks about the fading place of women in public affairs. There's a a new genre of literature, of conduct literature, which emerges during this time, which uh, starts to develop the idea of the woman as the head of the household. Because, of course, in the old days, the slaves would look after your household. The aristocratic women wouldn't have to worry about this. Now they are advised to learn about how to run a household, how to be the helpmate of your husband. So we're starting to get a discourse of of the housewife. You know, women's education catches up pretty quickly, in fact, in Thailand in the early 20th century, and women are starting to move into the bureaucracy, not in the sort of the political positions, the administrative positions, but in the, in the education system in particular. And what we find is that the majority of manners writers from about the, let's say, 1930s, 1940s, tend to be women. And it's often women who are aristocrats or they're quite close to court society. And they are very concerned by the same things that the male writers are concerned about. That is this interaction between the courtly ways and these new middle-class ways. For example, there is one famous book, Ban Sai Tong, The Golden Sands Palace, is perhaps a translation written by a famous Thai uh, novice, Gosa Rankanang, where she had been brought up in one of the palaces in the early 20th century. 
she has quite progressive ideas. And the book is about this woman, uh, Pochaman, who goes to Bangkok for her education and they have a distant relative who has a, a house in Bangkok and she goes to stay with the, these relatives who are aristocrats. And she gets treated terribly. She gets treated almost like a slave, like a serf. So the book, it, it's not really about gender. It's about that class conflict, the way that the aristocrats are lording it over and uh, treating the commoners so poorly. We don't actually see a strong gendered element in books like that. And in fact, in the manners literature that comes out written by women, the focus is really on the class dimension, not so much the gender dimension. And for example, uh, the wife of the education minister in the 1950s and 1960s, Dutsudi Mala, uh, Malagun, she writes a manners book where she says, really, there's no difference between the, the gentleman and the gentlewoman. The codes of conduct that she prescribes for both are pretty much the same. So one of the themes of the book, in fact, is that the gender element is not as strong as the class element. The key dimension, the key conflict, as I said, is the conflict between this uh, declining aristocracy and this rising uh, bourgeoisie. And the class element had a racial dimension as well. You talk about the part that the, for what a better term, the, the ethnic Chinese had in the political economic changes in the first part of the 20th century and then the consequences for their status, in particular with the rise of uh, communism, the destabilization of the polity and the re-emergence of the right after the coup in 1957. So perhaps you could briefly address that aspect of the book as well. Yeah, one of the problems I tried to understand in the book is what are the reasons for the predominance preponderance of that the courtly style of conduct and one of course is the enduring nature of the Thai monarchy unlike many other monarchies in Southeast Asia and other parts of the world it survived and in fact thrived partly due to Cold War reasons but if you think back to Norbert Elias with the rise of the middle class in the 18th and 19th century in Europe middle class norms of conduct start to dominate Initially, when the middle class is small, they want to uh, get you know, in favour with the aristocrats, marry into the aristocracy and so on. They take on the manners of the aristocrats. By the 19th century, they're, they're so powerful, they don't need to do that. And middle class norms uh, start to dominate. But in the Thai case, up until quite recently, arguably, uh, you don't see that. It's the, the, the court norms that, that dominate. Why is that the case? One is the monarchy. The other thing I think has got to do with the peculiar nature of the Thai middle class. I talked about the bourgeois bureaucrats a minute ago. Some of those are, have ethnic Chinese ancestry, but it's a, the Thai bureaucracy is a predominantly, I guess, ethnic Thai institution. But outside of the bureaucracy, you have another middle class of sorts, that is the commercial middle class, and that is predominantly ethnic Chinese in origin. And they rely really for their businesses, for, for really their political protection even on the Thai state, in particular the Thai monarchy. So what it means is that the Thai middle class has been, in fact, divided between the bourgeois bureaucrats, this, this bureaucracy, which never really loses its sense that it's actually the royal bureaucracy that's actually working for the monarch. Uh, after 1932, the People's Party tried to carry out these reforms. But in fact, once the conservative turn takes place in the late 1950s, the bureaucracy is a very conservative royalist institution. And you see those courtly norms of conduct reflected in that. And on the other hand, you have this ethnic Chinese commercial middle class, which is wealthy, yes. It's very important for the development of the country, but its position within Thai society is quite insecure. 
particularly during the Cold War period. So it's sort of unwilling to exert its middle class ideals, I guess you'd say, to the extent that perhaps the European middle class did during a similar period of economic development. So those two factors, um, the strength of the monarchy and the, and the weakness and divided nature of the middle class, particularly the fact that you've got this thriving ethnic Chinese commercial middle class, which is somewhat uncertain about its place within Thai society and arguably up until quite recently it tends to be quite royalist, uh, loyal to the monarchy. That's been one of the factors that, uh, that, that has uh, failed to dislodge, if you like, the courtly influence over Thai manners. I think things have changed quite a lot in the last 20 years. And I had quite a bit of trouble, I have to say, in the latter part of the book, uh, everyone inevitably asks about the current situation. So the last chapter, I, I try and address the latter period, but the book is really focused on an earlier period. I think things have changed quite a bit over the last 20 years or so. Well, yes, indeed. And so we've concentrated our discussion on those earlier chapters because I also very much had that sense, but to appreciate the reasons that you included the penultimate chapter of the book. And it's there that you address the question of whether or not the gentle person has passed, as it were. Having made it this far, uh, we're getting into the 1970s and then certainly from the 1990s onwards, you're asking, is the gentle person any more? And is that a way of suggesting that this resurgence of values and practices associated with the court, with the creation of what you refer to at one point in the text as the as a national court society, has implications for how we read events in this last decade or so, the conflict between the yellows and reds, the ascendancy to the throne of the new monarch and so on? I think the major change when we try to understand changes in ideas of behaviour and conduct and manners, what I have argued is the entry of the urban and rural working classes into both the national economy as a result of national economic development really since the 1960s, but particularly in the last two or three decades, and also the increasing participation of these rural and urban working classes in the national political system. For most of the you know, 19th and 20th century, they're just not a factor. When we think of manners, and this is in, in Elias as well, it's a, a function, as I say, of inter- interdependence between this courtly class, this aristocratic class, and this rising middle class, as in the case of Thailand over the course of the 20th century. But in the last two or three decades, we see the increasing influence in, on, in national society of the urban and rural working class. And they have obviously a very different uh, habitus, if you can use that sociological term. They're not as exposed to the same restraints that the middle class and the, the, the courtly classes were. So I think this is a key factor for the erosion of the ideal of the gentle person. It just looks old-fashioned. It looks backward. It looks in some, you know, prostration is a, a good example. It just looks a bit ridiculous now. I think it's partly because that old courtly conception has become so weak now because the national society has changed and it's not as dominated by the courtly and, and, and bureaucratic classes as was once the case. This is obviously an ongoing uh, process and politics, in fact, reflects this change to, to a large extent, but I think it's also sort of going on at the the local level. I mean, that's a little bit abstract, but what I mean is, for example, if you look at the way language is represented in TV dramas and so on, there's a whole slang and use of impolite terms, which in the past you would never hear in TV dramas, impolite pronouns, for example, whereas now it's just it's just very common. 
Ellis didn't really talk about the lower classes very much at all in those books, but later sociologists have done. One sociologist, Katz Wouters, refers to this as the informalization process. You see it in, in all kinds of things in attitudes towards sexuality, for example. It's a kind of a loosening of the restraints of personal behavior. I think we can see that kind of process taking place in uh, the Thai case also over the last two or three decades. We've brought us back to Elias as we approach the end of our discussion, and it's appropriate in the sense that you also bring the reader back to Elias in the conclusion of the book. You've clearly read Elias very carefully and work with his studies closely and appreciate the possibilities for thinking productively with him in this history. And one of the reasons it's been applauded by readers and reviewers as innovative is because of this work that you've done, bringing his thinking into conversation with the history of manners and really doing important work documenting social and political change in Thailand through this lens, if you will. At the same time, you'll appreciate that there are some who have criticized both the civilizing process and courtly society on some grounds as misrepresenting historical facts, saying that the civilizing process is rather more a myth than fact. But others, perhaps more relevant for our purposes, argue that his account of the civilizing process is too deeply Eurocentric and therefore intellectually constrained. And on some accounts, his Eurocentrism contaminates the whole of his theory and renders it dubious for the kind of work you undertake. And yet you say that you found reading his work that you could transpose his accounts of the French court and think in terms of the fifth reign and find so many interesting points that enabled you to do that uh, scaffolding work, as I suggested a moment ago. And indeed, yours is the second book that I featured in the podcast series in which an author or authors have found this theory useful for discussion of a mainland Southeast Asian country. So I'd like to push you a little bit more on your use of him, noting those criticisms and how and why it was that you found that you could sustain your arguments through his theory. And perhaps, if you like, address some of those arguments that his approach is Eurocentric and therefore not suitable for the kind of work that you've successfully done. You're right, he has been criticised on those grounds. I think a little unfairly, I mean, the civilising process was written in the, the 1930s. Yes, of course, it's in, within a European context. And at the time, there's this interest in, in what is civilisation, particularly post-World War One, where European civilization seems to have uh, gone into sort of self-destruct mode. Elias is, is responding to that and looking at, yes, European examples. In the book, he does make some brief references to East Asia and I think there's Japan is in there, maybe one or two others, but yeah, they're not a focused. I think if he'd been writing now, he would do that um, because we, we live in a much more globalized world. What I've tried to do is to show that the processes that he claims to identify in the European case do seem very similar to processes in other parts of the world. And yeah, of course, there's local variations. But I think, it's, again, this idea that every part of the world is totally different from Europe is, is also problematic as well. What I've tried to show is that there is very similar processes taking place and you can show that empirically. So I guess I don't really take that criticism of the Eurocentricness of Avelius. I don't think it's as problematic as some of the critics have made it out to be. One of the things that got me very interested in the concept of habitus, uh, you know, this, this second nature, you speak, you comport yourself, you, even you think in a certain way and you don't even think about it, it's become habitualized. If you look at the pre-colonial discourse of manners, it's written within a Buddhist idiom. And I think all, all people who 
know a little bit about Theravada Buddhism would know this, is that they divide behavior up into three categories. It's conduct of the speech, conduct of the body, and conduct of the mind. Isn't this very similar to what Elias and others sociologists are referring to when they talk about habitus? habits which become second nature over time. So I think rather than highlighting the distinctiveness and difference of the Thai or Asian case, if you can look for the points of similarity, I think it can be a productive way of understanding a topic. As I said, I was trying to, I was sort of writing, I was pushing back, I was writing against this very old idea, both actually, I think, in sort of Western anthropology and in the conservative Thai circles that Thai manners are this essence of Thai national identity going back to the first kings of, of so-called Thai or whatever it was. Whereas I think Elias is able to show that if you use that approach, you can see that in fact, no, there are these social processes which have produced these forms of behaviour that aren't related to national identity, even though if you might call it whatever you like. And by the time he was writing, there was, of course, already a very well-developed German social constructivist literature that would have enabled him to communicate in that way. I'm curious, were there other theories that you toyed with, perhaps as ways to get access to some of the ideas that you've knitted together for the purposes of interpretation? Or were you pretty much persuaded by Elias from the outset of the project? You know, Ellis has been used very heavily, extensively in the studies of manners and conduct in the West. There's you know, hundreds and hundreds of books and articles using his work. Um, but within Asia, very few. It, you would know working in an, an Asia context that in some respects we, we sort of lag behind. There just isn't the literature that's been written on this already. So rather than sort of jump ahead, I wanted to show that this can actually be applied to the Thai case and then we can sort of look at other perspectives as well. I did look at other areas of the, for example, the history of the emotions literature. I I did try and uh, have a look at that at a few stages, but I I never found it very helpful in in my case. There's a big sociolinguistics literature on manners for the West. I also didn't find that all that helpful. Of course, and I do talk about in the book, there are ways that you should speak. There is advice on manners for speaking, if you like. During the period that I look at, it's not the main focus. The focus is really heavily on the body for interesting reasons. So there's a lot, lot obviously, prostration, but even if you walk past high-status people, you must sort of bow down and and ideally you get below the high-status person. The way you hold your body is extremely important in the Thai discourse of manners as it was over the 20th century. All of these things these days are um, held less seriously than than they once were, but the early focus of the manners literature really was heavily on the body and also on the mind to a certain extent. I think it comes partly out of that Buddhist uh, context. Is the book being translated to Thai and how has it been received among English language readers there thus far? It is being translated into Thai. It's not yet finished. Hopefully sometime by the end of the year, it should be done. When I've given papers on the topic in Thailand, I think everyone knows what I'm talking about. Sometimes when I talk about it here, I get you know blank faces and people kind of get it, but not quite. I'll be very interested to see what the reaction is when the book comes out in Thai. I certainly think that anyone who's listened to this podcast will have gotten it because you've given a really great outline of the book, your approach to it, and your rationale. So thank you very much for that. You know our conventional question because you ask your own interviewees uh, what's been happening since you completed work on the book and what's your next um, project on. When I was working on the book, as I mentioned just a minute ago, you could see a very clear transition from a period where where discourse of manners is produced within a Buddhist framework. 
there's a, a Buddhist language that's used to talk about manners. Um, I just mentioned the conduct of the body, conduct of the speech, conduct of the mind. And by the early 20th century, we can see the language that they're using to write about manners has changed. It's become secularized. The object of manners is also different. It's partly to be a good bureaucrat or to hold yourself well in polite society uh, so that people sort of don't look down on you as a sort of an uneducated bumpkin. It's got a much more sort of applied object to it. So that got me interested in the question of, of secularization. To what extent Thailand has transformed from a more religiously imbued society to a more secular society. And of course, it's not, not saying that uh, it's got there yet, or even that it maybe will ever go in that direction. Perhaps it's going the other way. But I became very interested in the question of secularization. So what I'm trying to work on now is to write a history of secularization in Thailand. And again, I'm hoping it'll be somewhat comparative. I think the secularization literature is heavily dominated by the experience of the Western Christian societies. Uh, yes, there has been something done on the um, uh, Muslim societies, a little bit on um, South Asia, particularly during the independence period where secularism was a big thing, but very little, I think, or much less, comparatively less on Buddhist societies and almost nothing on the Theravada Buddhist societies. Yes, there's a, I know there's a literature on uh, sort of modernism and this kind of thing, but I'm attracted to these longer term narratives over a century or, or so. And I want to try and see if I can pin down a story of secularization or indeed failed secularization from, say, the 19th through to the through the 20th century. As you say, there was that back and forth between Charles Taylor and, and Talal Asad and others, but indeed the Buddhist world or other religious communities were largely excluded from that. Of course, there is the um, comparative political theoretic literature that's leaned into some of this, but it sounds like there's a lot more to do. So we'll look forward to that. Uh, Patrick Jory, thanks so much for switching from your usual role as interviewer to interviewee so that we could discuss a history of manners and civility in Thailand. Thanks for inviting me, Nick. And listeners, thanks to you for listening to the end of the episode. And as you have, then I'm supposing that the topic was of interest, in which case you might also like to listen to Patrick and I talking some years ago now, Patrick, about Thailand's theory of monarchy, or alternatively, me again with Rod Broadhurst on the civilizing process in Cambodia, or rather more recently, Patrick talking with Yoshi Nori Nishizaki about dynastic democracy, political families of Thailand. These and hundreds of other episodes on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies channel of the New Books Network are available for you to download or stream completely free of charge via the website or wherever you get your podcasts.